Okay, well, I think we're at the bottom of page three in the notes you've been given. I'll just move a bit closer to you. And um, we've been looking at this issue of the dignity and importance of work in the sense that um, all kinds of negative experiences at work and negative attitudes to work need to be countered by a biblical theology of work which can orientate and direct your life for the remainder of it in terms of a real sense of dignity and worth in what we do. So we looked at the ways in which God calls us to faith to, and within the station that we are converted in, which usually now is going to be transformed because you're in it as a believer. And then the call to new heart attitudes and orientation. Uh, the compass of our lives, which was pulled in all kinds of directions, comes to a true north in terms of an orientation to God. And this led to the last two important things I said. This means God can speak to you specifically about your call to service in the world, which is the dominion mandate to subdue all things. Every area of life, Adam and Eve, and their offspring were to bring under the authority of God and in keeping with his principles of what they were designed to do. And the call to ministry in the church, which we could call the charismatic call, where we are all gifted to have a role and a function to play in the ministry and body life of the church. Now, <clears throat> this is what we mean by a mission in life. So what we're going to do now is consider why this is vitally important. The fact is, many people feel that their job is more like a prison sentence than a vocation. The average believer, member of a church like yours, like the one I pastor, um, converted, say, in their teens, as I was, and retiring at, say, 65 years of age, will attend church meetings for probably, on average, 8,000 hours. That's a lot, isn't it? However, during that same working lifetime, they will spend 90,000 to 100,000 hours at their place of work. So this means, if they have no clear idea who and what they are meant to be in that setting, we've let them down badly. <clears throat> in short, those 8,000 hours at work are actually designed to make them more effective in the 90 or to 100,000 hours they spend in other tasks to the glory of God. Some people will have no clear idea about how best to invest those hours and their service to God. And others will be see their working life more as a prison sentence, as I said, than a life calling. Uh, and just to bring this home to you, here's something I've picked up about comparing the workplace or prison cell. <clears throat> Just in case you've got the two mixed up, by the way, this should make things clearer. In prison, you spend the majority of your time in an 8-foot by 10-foot cell. At work, you spend the majority of your time in a 6-foot by 8-foot cubicle. <laughs> in prison, you get three free meals a day. At work, you only get a break for one meal, and then you have to pay for it. In prison, you get time off for good behavior. At work, you get more work for good behavior. <laughs> In prison, the guard locks and unlocks all the doors for you. At work, you must carry around a security card and open all the doors yourself. In prison, you can watch TV and play games. At work, you get fired for watching TV and, getting, um, and playing games. In prison, you get your own toilet. At work, you have to share with some idiot who pees all over the seat. <laughs> In prison, they allow your family and friends to visit you. At work, you can't even speak to your family. In prison, the taxpayers pay all the expenses with no work from you required. At work, you get to pay all the expenses to go to work, and then they deduct taxes from your salary to pay for the prisoners. <laughs> in prison, you spend most of your life inside bars wanting to get out. 
At work, you spend most of your time wanting to get out and go inside bars. <laughs> In prison, you must deal with sadistic warders, wardens. At work, they're called managers. <laughs> well, you get the idea. There's so many things that militate against a positive and happy attitude at work. But I've been coming to this point where we're going to be talking about a mission in our lives. Webster's Dictionary defines a mission as, quote, a continuing task or responsibility that one is destined or fitted to do, or especially called upon to undertake. I doubt there's less, more than 5% of Christians who would actually identify that they now know that they have a mission in life that fits that definition, destined or fitted to do, specially called upon to undertake. We all want something to be enthusiastic about. And enthusiasm is an English word that we derive from the Greek entheos, which means literally God in us. So, it's an interesting connection. Enthusiasm means God inside you. That God wants you to be enthused about life, because He is inside you. So, a vocation or calling implies, as we've seen, someone who calls. And a destiny implies someone who has determined that destiny. The more clearly we understand that God wants to speak to us about both things, the better. When you and I have found our mission in life, three things will be true of us. One, <clears throat> you are looking every day and each moment to do what God tells you to do, to make this world a better place. Under the guiding hand of His Holy Spirit, and in keeping with all the principles we're building up in our knowledge from the Word. Then, <clears throat> it means that you're going to be doing this one step at a time until you see the big picture. And that three, you're using the talents and gifts he's given you for three reasons. A, so that you derive the greatest pleasure in discovering and using the abilities God has given you. We're never at our happiest than when we're doing what we wanted and are gifted to do. B, that this means you're in the place to which he sent you to do it. And see, for the very purposes which God had in mind for you to accomplish on his behalf. Now, how fulfilling would that be for all of us, if it would be possible for us to do that? And we can sum it up in this way. A task to do, a place to do it in, and abilities to accomplish that. Now, it's to know, therefore, very, proud, very prominently in your spirit that you've been called by God, sent by God. Richard N. Bowles said it like this, You are here so that earth might become more like heaven and that human lives might become more like God's, God's life. This is what the kingdom is, that earth might become more like heaven and the lives of those around us might become more like God's life that he wanted for us. And how does this feel? Well, it's not so much something that God has to write in the sky for us, Many people are looking for guidance, like um, <clears throat> a sign drawn by an aircraft across the sky, or written in smoke from the trail that it leaves behind. And this will be the sign God gives you as to what you're meant to do. But I think it's more accurate to say that what God wants you to do is already being written in the in inside, in the very fiber of your being. And the more sensitive we are to God, the more accurately we'll discern what he's written inside us to do. I love the way the writer Frederick Buechner puts it. He says this, The kind of work that God usually calls you to is the kind of work, A, that you most need to do, and B, that the world most needs to have done for it. I think that's a striking statement. We grow up with a shaping of convictions and heart desires of the thing we most long for and need to do with our life and then discover that's exactly what the world most needs to have done for it. So there's a fit that can come. 
that we can meet a need no one else can meet. He added that the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deepest hunger meets. In other words, God says, you know, I wish this for you. And our response is to say, oh yes, that's what I've always wanted to do. Now, here's five questions you can test yourself with. And you could write in, if you're quick enough, um, your first gut reaction to each of these questions. When people look for guidance about what God may be telling them to do, I, I, I shortened it to these five statements, because I, I think, and they all begin with P, because preachers like to use artful alliterations, art. And the first is, what do you feel prompted to do? And that means insistent summonsing, you feel in your spirit, nudges, if you like, that you get frequently and maybe persistently they get intensified. It's a kind of insistent summons that keeps coming back to you when your thoughts aren't legitimately engaged on other things. When you've got quiet and musings, these are the promptings you feel staring up in you. What do you feel prompted to do? The second thing is, what do you enjoy pleasure in doing? Because mostly when God calls us to do something we're meant to do, actually we're going to enjoy it. Of course, every aspect of work has its downside, as we'll see why shortly. But what do you experience pleasure? So that when you're about that task, you wouldn't swap places with anybody else. You don't envy anybody else. This is your delight. The third question is, what do you experience power in doing? Because when we're doing things we're not meant to do, it's hard work, isn't it? And it's grinding, and it doesn't fit. And we wish we were somewhere else most of the time, because it's not us. The other way of putting this is, what's God anointed you to do? What has his Holy Spirit empowered you for? And giving you, therefore, an ease and a facility in doing it. You know, when we oil machinery, it doesn't creak and groan. It's smooth running, it's ticking over like a finely oiled engine. So it is with us. We feel well-oiled doing what we're meant to do because God's given us ability and anointing to do it. And what seems hard to others when they watch you, and I couldn't do that, you can. Because that's what you were meant to do. It's a good question to ask then. What do you experience power in doing? Fourth, what do you observe progress in doing? There's many things you probably tried in life, and you just can't get the hang of it. Knitting. <laughs> Swimming. Climbing mountains. Tightrope walking. Playing Lego. Chess. You just can't do it. You're never going to get good at it. But there are some things that you're in your element when you're doing them. And you get better and better at it. Because you don't begrudge the time in doing it. You produce fruit in these activities. And God wants us to bear fruit. It's something that evidently God is favoring you with. And the results flow. Now what would that be? That's probably your calling. And the last question is, what do you receive praise in doing? Because this is a good thing. What do other people think of you in that task and the way you function? Because human endorsement is often important when you are in the right calling because people will endorse the fact that you're in the right calling. In fact, it's probably essential for most of us to feel endorsed. They will say, do you know, you were born for this, weren't you? Or they say things like, I've never seen anyone do this job as well as you do. You produce such marvelous results. You're such a blessing with those children. You're a marvelous speaker. Oh, you've got a great skill in uh, practical work. You, you make it look easy. So this, is me this means, therefore, that we're constantly receiving positive feedback about something we, we might have been in doubt about and lack confidence in doing. But the very fact that we're being affirmed means we're on the right track. And God will ensure we get affirmation, probably all through our life, when we most need it. Yes. So it may be you find a kind of love for words. 
either speaking them or writing them, or for music, playing or composing it. Sometimes it's children that draw your attention and heart concern. You want to be a teacher. Or clunking cars, as I mentioned last night. Or pregnant mums. My sister-in-law, Ruth's, my wife, her sister Catherine, ten years older than her, <coughs> was a midwife for years. It was the thing she was in her element doing. She just couldn't wait to get to the next pregnant mum and see her safely through the birth and delivery. And I think she delivered about 237 babies. Um, no, it was probably more because she did it for 30 years. So you see... <laughs> <laughs> Others are drawn by the fantastic world of ideas and books. And we're all different. And these things mean different things to different people. But usually, you, you find yourself drawn to something. You can't see a blank canvas without wanting to get colored paints and a brush. And filling that canvas, that's an artist's calling. Elizabeth O'Connor said, We ask to know the will of God without guessing that his will is written in our very beings. And I quoted Frederick Beter earlier and yesterday. I'm going to repeat this quote. He offers this advice. Listen to your life and see it for the fathomless mystery that it is, in the boredom and in the pain of it. No less than the excitement and the sadness. Touch, taste, and smell your way to the holy, hidden heart of your life. So sometimes it takes a, a while to discover what we're really meant to do. But it would appear that very few people actually get to do what they most wanted to do. Well, I think we should prioritize this. This is why a theology of work is very important for us. Your identity, have you noticed, is sometimes bound up in your calling in life. In fact, in British society, one of the first things we ask people on, on first holding a conversation is them, with them is this, uh, and what do you do for a living, don't we? Because in some way their identity is bound up with that. Their gifts, their talents, the outlet for their abilities is bound up with that. And in older, older times... A lot of the surnames in English society came from this very thing. Think of these surnames. Miller, Baker, Potter, Carpenter, Plowman, Wheelwright, Blacksmith. Now if you put Mr. in front of all of those, you've probably all met at least two or three of those in your interactions with people in the town in which you live. But that's the historic origin of them. That's what they did. Those tasks gave them that name. So that naming is a way of identifying people, and that identity is bound up in that vocation. So Dorothy L. Sayers says, Work is not primarily a thing one does to live. It's a thing one lives to do. God has given you talents, and he wants to use them in fulfilling ways. To waste them or ignore them would be the road to boredom, frustration even in life. So this might sound idealistic to people who have the time and leisure and money to be able to follow these things. But actually I think there's a real truth here that there are things we are meant to do and we'll never truly be ourselves until we're doing them. All of our great heroes and heroines in the Bible found out what God wanted them to do and then did it. And I posed the question, have you done this yet? Found out what God wanted you to do and now you're doing it. Or are you living a bored life to some degree, begrudging getting up in the weekdays and going about dull routines or grubbing around for something to give some meaning or purpose to your life? Some people just spend all the hours they can on trips to the cinema or trips to the club or the bar or fancy meals out when what God actually wants is for you to achieve something great with the one life he's given to you. So try completing this sentence. Are you ready? If there was one thing that would make my life complete before I die, 
it would be dot 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 I'm going to repeat that because I'd like you to write it down if there was one thing that would make my life complete before I die it would be I know some of us hardly dare to think about that or we think we're presumptuous in writing it down but there's got to be something like that ticking away in your heart what would it be? I'm not going to ask you to read them out probably personal and private for you between you and the Lord but Walter Brueggemann the American Old Testament scholar said this to embrace a call means a willingness then to follow a sense of call in our time he writes is profoundly countercultural. the ideology of our time is that we live an uncalled life one not referred to any purpose beyond one's personal self you know that's a sad thing isn't it to live an uncalled life not having any reference to some to God beyond your life who's addressed you in that call it's no wonder there's so much depression and alcohol and drug addiction and despair and hopelessness and suicide we all have to live a called life to live an uncalled life is perhaps to miss your destiny now let's look at how this bears upon work which we could call working at our vocation work I know is a four letter word <laughs> and one that's not likely to excite anything other than negative emotions in most hearts and sometimes even in the hearts of the people of God also they'd rather be somewhere else doing something else but biblically work can tally with your vocation under God and work is not only a necessity for survival an outlook that gave it a sad and burdensome image it also has an eschatological meaning now if you don't understand the word eschatological don't worry about it because it's not the end of the world <laughs> but it's a future orientated word eschatological has to do with the end the end time the future so our work is something to do with the future we're creating the future by our work it's a means not only of maintaining life now in the present but anticipating life then in the future so to build a house or plant a tree or a garden has a future orientation to teach a class has a future orientation Bishop Westcott once said the whole world will eventually be conquered by what Christ did in Judea that's a future orientation mm. all of Jesus life from the cradle to the grave was orientated to a future and a kingdom and brought that kingdom into being and guaranteed its success and guaranteed that millions of lives would be affected by it but it was only a brief life 33 years now you really therefore are called along with him to work at your vocation if you and I are to feel better about our work then there's only one thing that can do that and I believe it's good theology this is why it is utterly foolish to think you don't need theology you will be impoverished beyond calculation without theology theology enriches everything it enriches your thought life it enriches your outlook it enriches your understanding it enriches your hope it enriches your grasp of reality it enriches your worldview it enriches every single day of your life and you can't get enough theology if you've got any sense 
If you and I are to feel better then about our work, then there's only one thing that will do it, and that is a good theology of work. Because all of life is theologically determined. And it's only a question of which theology you've embraced. And there's only two choices, good theology or bad theology. So that's why theology was once regarded as queen of all the fields of study and sciences in the universities. They had faculties of maths and philosophy and, and the sciences and of languages. But you know, theology was central. It was the center because it had a throne around which every other field of understanding orbited and was informed by and given its sense of meaning and purpose. No wonder secularism has led people to lose their way because secularism is a man-centered theology which is no theology at all. So now we need an overview of the Bible teaching on this topic that we may well change in our whole outlook as a result of this. It certainly make a difference to Sunday and Monday. So what is your idea of heaven? I don't know what you think is awaiting us in heaven. Let me put some uh, options for you. Would you like to choose one? <laughs> heaven would be like an eternal Saturday. A long lie-in, not today unfortunately. A cooked breakfast, maybe a football match or a trip to Lakeside or Blue Water for a whole afternoon and evening of shopping. Is that your idea of heaven? <laughs> Here's another idea. Heaven is a veteran's rest home <laughs> with comfy chairs, bedroom slippers, regular meals three times a day, and afternoon naps because it's a world of rest and peace. How about this one? Heaven is an eternal Sabbath or Sunday. Hymns galore. Or, given the distinctions between Christians in recent decades, hymns over there, choruses over here. <laughs> so that most Christians have a concept that will be an eternal sing-song um, with angelic choirs for all eternity. Is that your concept of heaven? Maybe on a cloud, plucking a harp, like an angel. That doesn't seem very appealing to me. And then, another suggestion. An everlasting Monday to Friday. <laughs> with lots of interesting things to do. Many tasks to perform. Many responsibilities given to us. On this earth, and the energy to fulfill all of those tasks. Hmm. Now that's a thought-provoking concept, isn't it? In an ideal world, it poses this question. In an ideal world, would there be any work? Would you still go to work if you weren't paid to do it? Is work just a curse, the result of the fall of man? Well, to answer those questions, you have to turn to the only inspired scriptures that tell us about that, and that's Genesis 1 to 2. And I hinted on this last night when we were looking at the issue of Adam and Eve, but I'm going to spend a little time on this now, because we have the creation account of the world as it was in the beginning, <coughs> as God conceived it to be. And God is clearly wanting us to grasp this, because this is the book of origins, and this is the foundation of life, the universe, and everything, and the whole outlook on life which we're meant to have. You probably know that Genesis 1 to 2, these two brief short chapters, deals with everything that is important to us in this world. It deals with the issue of origins, and the nature of nature, our relation to the animals. It deals with issues of sex, and indeed sexuality. It has implications for homosexuality, marriage, calling, work, child-rearing, politics, science, technology, government, rule. We would have no foundation for our ethics that had any solidity to inform our understanding unless we possessed and believed these early chapters of Genesis as sober history 
and magnificent theology. No wonder Satan and rebel men hate these chapters and are always seeking to discredit them. Now, what do they yield for us? A theological foundation for work, for one thing. What they tell us is that God himself is a worker. He has imagination, so he can conceive things that don't yet exist. And then he has creative power to make them become a reality, external to himself. He's the creator, but he delights to make something new, namely the creature. And there is a distinction, this is the only dualism that really matters, that between the creator, who has always been there and never had a beginning and will never end, is infinitely intelligent and infinitely powerful, and the other end of this dualism is the creature that did have a beginning and will have an end and therefore is dependent utterly on the Creator for its existence and its maintenance. The sooner people realize that, the more healthy-minded they will become and reverential and fearful in their worship of God. Clean fear, that is, not craven fear. So, God can extend energy to manufacture and bring into being the things he's conceived. And he has the creative power so he can turn the blueprints in his mind which are only in his mind at that time, into something physical and objective to himself, into external reality, which is what Genesis 1 and 2 describe in great detail for us. At least sufficient detail for us to understand what's going on. Not only has he got creative power, he's also versatile in what he can make. So he can give himself to a vast array and variety of creative things. Now this is important because, made in his image, he's often granted to us an amazing versatility of abilities too. Everything from atoms to planets, from molecules to man, from animals to rivers and oceans, everything is a wonderful diversity but finds its unity in him. He is both a manufacturing worker and a maintenance worker. He's also a designer and engineer, with all of the artistic, mathematical, mechanical and motor skills necessary to affect exactly what he wants, and then be pleased that it's very good when it's made. Another striking thing about God is that he is cooperative and works in partnership with other persons. So Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make man in our own image and likeness. This is merely hint, as is the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, which is a plural. It literally means gods, and gods said. But of course, this is a primitive and early hint that God is more than one. He is three persons in Trinity. There's only one God, but there's a diversity of persons in the Trinity. God is God in three ways of being. As the New Testament fully reveals, he is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet only one God. Let us make man in our image. So there's a cooperation between God the Father, who is initiating, God the Word, or the Logos, through whom he speaks everything into being, describing and directing what will happen, and then God the Holy Spirit energizing and ordering all that God is making. So that at the microcosmic level of subatomic particles or the DNA coding of living organisms, right up to the patterns of um, the order of the whole universe and, and, and the solar system, God is a God of order. So it means then that God puts a priority on good management and good working relationships. And that's what's to be modeled in our working relationships. Have you heard this? A man in a hot air balloon realizes that he's lost. He reduces altitude and spots a woman below on the ground. He descends a bit more and shouts to her, Excuse me, can you help me? I promised a friend I'd meet him an hour ago, but I am completely lost. I don't know where I am. So the woman below replies, You're in a hot air balloon, (laughs) hovering approximately 10 meters above the ground, and you're between 40 
and 41 degrees north and latitude, between 59 and 60 degrees west longitude. You must be an engineer, yells the balloonist. I am, replies the woman. How did you know? Well, answers the balloonist, everything you've told me is technically correct, but I've no idea what to make of your information. And the fact is, I'm still lost. You've not been much help to me at all. If anything, you've actually delayed my trip. <laughs> the woman below responds, you must be in management then. <laughs> I am, replies the balloonist, but how did you know? Well, says the woman, you don't know where you are or where you're going. You've risen to where you are due to a large quantity of hot air. <laughs> you made a promise which you've no idea how to keep and you expect people beneath you to solve your problems. <laughs> and she added, the fact is, you're exact, in exactly the same position you were before we met, but somehow, it's now my fault. <laughs> now, that highlights that God's ideal for work is that people work in plurality and in harmony according to their complementary gifts to get the task done, because that's what God himself did. God then felt deep satisfaction and pleasure in his work. God both created it out of nothing, but also continues to sustain the creation by keeping it in existence. God, therefore, enjoyed making and completing this creation, saying, it's very good over every day's handiwork. And he built into this process and into his world, therefore, a rhythm, because he only took six days to create it and set apart the seventh day which I believe are actually literal 24 hours. Each of them is enumerated. And where days are enumerated elsewhere in the Bible, they are literally 24-hour days. That each one has an evening and a morning. So they are diurnal days like we're familiar with now. And remember, the Hebrews' day begins with sunset, not sunrise like ours. So evening comes before morning. And there are seven of them. And in Exodus 20, this becomes the pattern for man's working week. Six days shalt thou labor. And the reason is given, because in six days the Lord your God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh he rested. And there's no way you can squeeze billions of years into those six days in Genesis. So then you've got a problem what you do with them if you don't believe they are 24 hours. But that's your problem, it's not my problem. I think they are six diurnal days, because God has the intelligence and the power to finish anything in whatever time he wants, and he chose six days. If you're very intelligent, and you've got limitless power, you don't need a long time, let alone 13.5 billion years to make something. You can do it in six days if you want. So think about that. <laughs> now, that's our original theology of work, which is God the worker. Made in his image, we are workers too. Hence the verses of commissioning to Adam and Eve to have dominion over everything God has placed on the planet for them to tap the resources and use and bring into a completeness and completely new patterns of connectivity. <laughs> Adam was put on the earth not just to sing choruses, so that's why I don't think that's our ultimate destiny, to sing choruses for all eternity. His fellowship with God took place after he had finished his work each day, in the cool of the evening, as it says. And he had a job to do. He was a gardener. He worked with his hands, so he had the ability to see the worth of and dignity of manual work. So God has given us abilities reflecting his own in a finite degree. We have mental processes, including imagination, to conceive things that have never been done before or made before. And to do things differently than they've ever been done before. This is progress. This is what civilization facilitates us doing, technology that we invent. We have authority to change circumstances that's come from God, along with the power to be able to do it. And that authority extends over the animate creation of other creatures that are being created alongside of us. So we have responsibility for not only plants, but animals, and indeed even bacteria. 
over trees and rocks and chemicals and minerals and waters and wind and grass. We can't abdicate this without things devolving into some kind of disorder and chaos. But nor should we exploit them to the point of doing irreparable damage, let alone bringing extinction to some of those animals. So partnership then comes in that between the man and the woman. Adam was alone initially and then Eve was created to be his helper, his partner alongside of him in the task of dominion. So all work is ultimately meant to be team work. There's not a one of us in this room is independent from other people. We're interdependent on other people. We can't help but be independent, uh, interdependent rather. Now the creation was finished therefore, as the picture at the end of Genesis 1 and 2 is uh, described, but it's not yet complete. It's finished but not complete. There's a heck of a lot yet to be done by Adam and Eve and their offspring in unlocking the potential of the creation God has placed them in. And this needs man's contribution to continue its ordering and unlocking of its mysteries that God has placed in it. Unlocking of its potential by husbandry and proper usage of its animals and soils and fruits and chemicals and minerals and harnessing of its energies and landscaping and building with its materials and marking out territories and dwelling places which would have gone on in harmony and beauty to fill this earth with uh, billions of people with utterly adequate resources for their continued survival and that forever. So if you don't work, in some ways you're less than the human being God wanted you to be. And you'll be forever bored and you'll never find fulfillment. So, here's the bottom line. Work is meant to be a pleasure. Are you getting this now? Yeah. <laughs> Have you discovered the joy of using your natural talents? A joint, superbly welded. A ball kicked into a goal. A poem beautifully crafted. A race well run. Delivering your 237th baby. <laughs> Uh, putting out a dangerous fire, preaching a life-changing sermon, teaching a class of thick six-year-olds so that they fulfill the potential with the mind that God has given them. It's not so much then a question of how busy we are, it's more a question about what are you busy doing? We praise the honeybee for flitting from flower to flower, gathering nectar to make honey, but we swat mosquitoes. One is a blessing to mankind, the other is a kind of result of the curse, I'm sure of that. <laughs> so, made in his image, man is a worker. Do you, are you getting this theology under your belt? And that work, thirdly, has to be properly balanced. Genesis 2, the narrative I hope you're familiar with, of how Adam was at first single and alone, and God had uh, set out a patch of the paradise of Eden for him to look after. <clears throat> and had brought to him every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now, the work was balanced for Adam in this way. A, it was both manual and mental. Adam was a gardener. He took care of the real estate that God had entrusted to him. And so he engaged in digging and tilling, sowing and harvesting the fruits of the plants that were around it. But he also used his brain. In Genesis 2, 19-20, he was a scientist the first one, because he, he had an ability to name and classify the animals. We don't know what language he spoke. The Jews have always maintained it was Hebrew. <laughs> and whatever language it was, he looked at a creature and then he invented 
a selection of syllables that would describe that creature and we can't help doing it we all name everything we name our kids we name our property we name our cat and dog we name our budgies we name objects we've discovered we can't help but name because it's part of exercising authority to give a name to something you to get a handle on it with that name to see its relationship to other objects that are like it or unlike it we classify, we do taxonomy so we can see resemblances between certain animals and know that they belong to a certain family or genus or species and that's what Adam was doing classifying the animals in an early form of biology, zoology and taxonomy discovering and observing the distinctive features of the animal world and their relationships to one another and don't forget there was no carnivorous animals at this time he could tousle lions, wrestle with grizzly bears uh, mess around with snakes with no problems except the one snake Satan became embodied in temporarily that was a very dangerous animal but what we've got to understand is work is using your head and using your hands and the best way to live your life is to use both if you can so if you're a manual worker read at least two books a month and if you read all the time and study and teach classes try and do some work with your hands to, so you get a balanced fit this leads to the second heading it was his work had a proper rhythm of work worship and play his work was carried out before God and at God's behest so it was an act of worship and it would have been interrupted by regular play over a seven-day week and enhanced by the joy of partnership eventually with Eve and increased productivity through her and her abilities and help so here is Adam who is rating, who's relating to God in fellowship and in worship, chapter 3 verse 8 because he talks with him in the evening of the day to Eve in companionship and partnership to creation itself in work and to the seventh day in rest and recreation as God himself had done God didn't need rest he stopped work for a whole 24 hours to model what man made in his image should do with the rhythm of his life and in addition then, unlike God, we do need rest and sleep on a daily basis. Do you know one of the things that's very important about sleep? It helps you to recall that you aren't God. Doesn't it? For he who watches over Israel neither slumbers or sleeps, but you can't get away with stopping to slumber or sleep. You have to stop and slumber and sleep. On average seven to nine hours and those seven to nine hours are when you're completely out of action you're dead to the world and it's a daily reminder you know, I can get by without you, says God I'm still running the universe <laughs> and it's a humbling thing that we have to sleep but it's a very healthy thing that we do if only to remind ourselves that we're not God we find this an extremely difficult balance to I order these three things relating God properly to God to the created world to one another and to the needs of our body and souls somebody's put it like this then Americans worship their work play at their worship and work at their play it's not a bad description is it Americans worship their work play at their worship and work at their play they're very serious sportsmen and women aren't they but it may be more accurate to say that the British people probably play at our work work at our play and totally bunk off our worship <laughs> but you know the ideal is this to work at your work to worship at your worship and to play at your play Rest and play are the dessert of life. They're the treat at the end of it, aren't they? Mm -hmm. The end of each hard day's work. But work is the meal. It's only a child who dreams of dessert all the time. 
Let me find something that I didn't quote to you. It's from Wendell Berry, who is a farmer in America and a brilliant theologian. That's a rare combination, isn't it? And in his book, What Are People For? He comments on our lust for pleasure as the only meaning in life. It's just a couple of paragraphs, but it's worth hearing. He said, it may be argued that our whole society is more devoted to pleasure than any whole society ever was in the past. And that we support, in fact, a great variety of pleasure industries that have, that, are, that these are thriving as never before. But that would seem only to prove my point, that there can be pleasure industries at all, exploiting our apparently limitless inability to be pleased can only mean that our economy is divorced from pleasure and that pleasure is gone from our workplaces and our homes and dwelling places. Our workplaces are more and more exclusively given over to production and our dwelling places to consumption. And this accounts for the accelerating division of our country into defeated landscapes and victorious but threatened landscapes. More and more we take for granted that work must be destitute of pleasure. More and more we assume that if we want to be pleased, we've got to wait until evening or the weekend or our vacation or our retirement. More and more our farms and forests resemble our factories and offices, which in turn more and more resemble prisons. Why else should we be so eager to escape them? We recognize defeated landscapes by the absence of pleasure from them. We're defeated at work because our work gives us no pleasure, and we're defeated at home because we have no pleasant work there. We turn to the pleasure industries for relief from our defeat and are again defeated, for the pleasure industries can thrive and grow only because we're completely dissatisfied with them. I bet you'd like to read that and think about it. But he's saying we've got our lives completely unbalanced because of our lust for pleasure. Well now, <clears throat> we're coming to an end of this session. But it's vital that we see that God must be invited into the process of living our daily lives. The vital connections here between work and leisure, work and creativity, work and satisfaction, work and pleasure, as Wendell Berry's arguing for, work and human community, work and livelihood, work and the production of all that is needed to sustain life, and above all, work and worship. They all connect. These are kingdom activities we're talking about. And it's vital that God is invited to be part of that process. So, in the last session, we're going to talk then about what's contaminated this and how it can be put right. <clears throat>